this week I got thinking about repentance, how even if we agree on the basic definition of it, it's undeniable that it looks different in different people in different contexts. Let me share an illustration I found, I think it was in Ligonier. Quote, imagine repentance as a man walking in one direction who suddenly realizes that he is walking in the opposite direction from which he should be walking. He stops, he turns around. Then he begins walking in the new direction. It's a quick and simple process. He realizes, he stops, he turns. But imagine someone on a bicycle realizing he's going the wrong direction. In one sense, it is still obvious. He stops, he turns around, he begins bicycling in the new direction. But it is a longer process. He has to come to a stop, depending on his speed, that may take some time. The turning around also takes longer, and it takes longer to get up to full speed in the new direction. The process is the same for a man in a car, but it takes longer than for the man on the bike, and it may require going somewhat out of his way before he gets back on the right track. The process is the same for a man in a speedboat. He has to slow down, enter the turn, and come back. But the time and distance required to do so is much longer than what was required for the man walking. Now imagine that the man is piloting a super tanker. It takes him miles to slow the ship down enough to even begin to make the turn. The turn itself is immense, taking him quite a distance from his intended course. Then again, it also takes a large amount of time to get up to full speed in the new direction. So the author goes on to explain, with some sins, It looks like an easy fix with a clear path of repentance to get back to walking in the spirit. With other sins, some may be so deeply ingrained in them that it's like piloting a huge ship who need a lot of help, a lot of effort, a lot of time to get back. As we continue in the life of David, it appears he's caught in one of those... uh, super tanker sins, one that dishonors God and endangers himself and those under his authority. David's great sin is this. He did not accept what the grace of God gives him and what the grace of God does not. Recall how the Lord gave his anointed everything, the crown, the throne, the victories, and the riches. Yet the king was not satisfied. He took another man's wife, tried to cover it up by sending him home. When that didn't work, he sent him to his death in battle, in the front lines, spilling innocent blood for no good reason. He then minimized his sin. He took the widowed wife as his own. He acted like he did nothing wrong. But the good Lord loved David too much to to let him be. Here's a sure sign that we belong to our Heavenly Father. It's the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons from Proverbs and Hebrews. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, 
and scourges every son whom he receives. Because God made a lasting covenant with David, he's not going to leave him alone. You look at Psalm 32 and observe that the Lord caused turmoil within David. Listen to these words from that chapter, verses 3 to 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. For about a year or so, so I think, uh, I imagine David's unable to sleep at night. He's haunted by day. He's hunted by the hound of heaven. So what happens in 2 Samuel 12 is that he's caught. And it turns out to be a relief for David's soul, even if it means great sorrow and deep regret at first. Let's see how it gets back on course to be the man after God's own heart. So 2 Samuel chapter 12. That's in page 212, I mean, say 219 in your pew Bible if you're using that. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There are two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. 
David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones. And it was set on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. A quick note on the structure. Nathan plays a key pivotal role in David's turnaround. The Lord sends the prophet in verse 1, and then in the first part of verse 15, he returns to his home. But we're not done with him yet. You see his name again in verse 25. This time, Nathan carries a word of assurance for David and Bathsheba, not one of death. That gives us a threefold division of the chapter. Corresponding to that outline, I say there are three steps to restoring your walk with God. Consider them like a three-point turn while driving. First, when God sends you a convicting message, admit your sin. When God sends you a convicting message, admit your sin. That's verses 1 through 15a, I'll call it, the first part of verse 15. Secondly, when God afflicts you for chastening, humble yourself. When God afflicts you for chastening, humble yourself. I'll say that's verse 15b, second part of verse 15 to 25. 
Thirdly, when God reminds you of your purpose, finish your work. When God reminds you of your purpose, finish your work. That's verse 26 to 31. The first, when God sends you a convicting message, admit your sin. I'll spend the most amount of time on this lesson here. Now, underneath the heading of this first lesson are some smaller lessons about true friendship and communication. Concerning friendship, somebody once observed that God sent Jonathan to David when he was down and humiliated, but then later he sent Nathan to David when he was up on his high horse and prideful. We need both Jonathans and Nathans in our lives. Now, we don't mind having Jonathans in our lives for encouragement, but we really do also need Nathans to confront us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, about communication, perhaps Nathan the prophet would agree with this saying, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. What I mean by medicine is this convicting message. And what I mean by a spoonful of sugar is the parable. Nathan uses it. Later, our Lord Jesus uses it. It's part of a neatly prepared rhetorical package. It's a word fitly spoken, used by a wise rebuker. Now, what makes this parable great? Well, the story doesn't have spectacular elements. There's no magic or dragons in it. Um, It's so simple and plain. You will not necessarily question whether it happened or not. Hospitality was an important aspect of David's culture. And yes, it's true that sometimes individual flock animals were kept as household pets. And tragically, even today, Greedy and wealthy people exploited and took from those poorer than them. The realism of the story stirs up real emotions in David. You know, the Bible says the king's wrath is as messengers of death, like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. Except the rich man that provoked David to anger was David himself, the king is quick to pronounce a death sentence. David is precise and firm in his justice. Even his citation of the law is spot on from Exodus 22, verse 1. It says there, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. David has the sword raised and poised for the strike, but is aimed at his own neck. Nathan's setup is complete, but it still takes real courage for Nathan to say, you are the man. Only two words in Hebrew, but it changed David forever. Now we applaud this moment. It's about time that David learns how much much wrong he has done. It's about time he realizes how much he has hurt others. Yet we see in the prophetic message, the one most offended by David, the king of Israel, is the Lord God of Israel. 
Nathan starts with the accusatory you in the first half of verse 7, but twice speaking for God, there's the I in the second half of verse 7. And then in verse 8, twice it says, I gave. And then that last phrase, more literally, I would have added much more. It's as if the Lord is teaching us, you can't spell sin without the I. Every sin at its core has this vertical dimension. Sin is our offense on earth against God in heaven. That's why we must properly define sin, lest we minimize it. We can't define sin according to the shifting norms of our times, not even our beloved traditions. Those are moving targets. So that's why we must focus on how our sin offends God before thinking about its other aspects. Work your way up and down before left and right. That's what Nathan encourages here and what David does here. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So it is only after verses 7 and 8 that we get to the horizontal dimension of sin. That dimension starts with the sinner. 1 Corinthians 6.18 reminds us that he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Then, of course, that's, there's what uh, David did to Uriah and his family. That phrase in verse uh, 9, the last part of verse 9, have killed with the sword of the people of Ammon, sounds a bit repetitive considering what came earlier in that verse. Yet it's a scathing reminder of David's negligence of his kingly duty. Remember, as king, he should have been fighting wars against the Ammonites instead of manipulating them for his evil purposes. On to verse 10. Now, therefore, it says... We can't avoid this. There are consequences of choices. We have the freedom of choice. We do not have freedom from consequences. That's plain from the scriptures. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The wages of sin is death. Now, praise God that believers do not have to pay the eternal consequences of our sinful choices in hell. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for that. But there are, even for the saints, temporal consequences of sin. Limbs and scars on our bodies and in our minds. In the case of David, there is poetic justice. He used the sword to destroy his neighbor's house, so the sword will tear apart his own. He took another man's wife for himself. Someone close to him will take his wives. David's sin was done in secret, in the dark, but God will disgrace him in public, in broad daylight. You'll see how this plays out in the rest of 2 Samuel very soon. David responds to the convicting message in verse 13. There are no excuses, no defense. He feels the weight of his sin. His only response is, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Only two words in the original. He gets it. He admits his sin. God's messenger, Nathan, responds immediately with the truth that is in the gospel. The Lord also has put away your sin. The one most offended by your sin is the one who can put it away. How is this possible? More on this later. For now, we see David spared from his own death sentence, uttered in verse 5. But because his sin makes God look bad in the sight of the world, the son must die. I can't imagine the heartbreak. I know a few who buried their son or daughter. But rarely have I found that it's directly the fault of the parent. David's kid died because of his father. This is a hard lesson. You know, a famous commentator, J. Alec Motier, Motier uh, wrote, Repentance is like fetching back a stone one has just thrown into a pool. The stone can be retrieved, but the ripples go on spreading. All that David can do now is go on repenting, Yet there's much that happens in and through repentance. True repentance that begins in us proves itself to be genuine outwardly. We're reminded of this truth in 2 Corinthians 7, 11, every time we repent genuinely. For, you, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. And that gets us thinking about the second step in that three-point turn to restore your walk with God. When God afflicts you for chastening, humble yourself. David humbled himself by prayer and fasting. None could move him from his prostrate position. He's demonstrating James 4, 9 through 10. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility not only drives us to our knees, humility also gets us up from the ground. And when the child died, he accepted God's will. Now, David's response in verses 22 to 23 reveals much about his understanding of God's will. Recall that earlier, God through Nathan has said, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Yet David held out hope. Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Here's what I think is going on. The king suspects that there is a secret will behind the revealed will of God. It's when we recognize that we don't know everything comprehensively about God's plans that gets us desperately seeking him. That's why we pray. Now, we could stop here and get into some discussions about divine immutability, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. And there's nothing wrong with such talk. But just to be quick on this, if your understanding of God doesn't motivate you to pray more, something's probably wrong with your theology. David's faith, and our faith too, 
is a relationship with the person. A being like none other, but a person nonetheless. Now, from these verses, we could also discuss the tragic topic of death of young children or some that hits close to home. Does David distinguish between sin nature and sin committed? It appears so from Psalm 51, 4 4 and 5. Is there an age of accountability when one can consciously repent and trust in Christ? If so, when is it? What is the eternal destiny of the unborn, the newborn, the infant? In verse 23, David convinced his uh, his son won't return to him, but he says he'll go to him. Now, is that place that he'll go to simply afterlife, the place of the dead the Bible calls Shoal? Or is David picturing a reunion with his son in blissful paradise? I don't think the answer is as clear as some make it out to be. Besides, we cannot rely on today's passage alone to answer these questions. We have to consider many other Bible verses, but I am persuaded that the following principle can be derived from David's words here. When God afflicts you for chastening, humble yourself. When is the last time you sought God like David? with fervor and desperation. David's not the only one. Everyone who is godly prays to God in a time when he may be found. There are plenty of other examples in the scriptures. On the eve of Sodom and Gomorrah's doom, Abraham interceded for the righteous there, all the while trusting that the judge of all the earth will do right. Moses put himself on the line when God was about to destroy Israel for worshiping the golden calf, The Ninevites, much to Jonah's chagrin, responded to his preaching, put on sackcloth and sat on ashes, repented, begging to be spared. Paul suffered some thorn in his flesh and pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from him, but the answer he received was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness, and I can't forget my Lord Jesus, Though he never sinned, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In agony, sweat, and blood, he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was hurt because of his godly fear. Back to David, he submitted to God's will. He learned to accept what the grace of God gives him and what the grace of God does not. He went on living, worshipped, and comforted Bathsheba and had another child. Now, even a man of great faith would be nervous to parent again after losing a child to divine discipline. But the Lord gives him assurance of his love. David and Bathsheba's son has two names. One is Jedediah which simply means beloved of Yahweh. The other is Solomon, which means peace. When David first had the idea of building a temple, God sent the following word recorded in 1 Chronicles 22, 8 through 9. You have shed much blood, talking to David, and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you 
who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. This new baby's names and his very health are object lessons for David. God's love and peace have new significance as he emerges out of this trial, transformed. That he would agree with the word of Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It also seems like the Lord takes David back to what he should have been doing all along before he got into this mess. Here's the final step in making that U-turn spiritually. When God reminds you of your purpose, finish your work. As we arrive in 2 Samuel 12, 26, we come full circle. 2 Samuel 10 ended with the Ammonites without allies. 2 Samuel 11 began with the Ammonites without escape in Rabbah. Now they're without water, and that's essentially the end for them. Joab gives his king the final chance to claim victory over this important king. Like the king's fingers would remember their own strength better if they grasped his sword. Not only if what happened in verse 29 of chapter 12 happened earlier in chapter 11, verse 1, what could have and should have happened would have read like this. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. David gathered all the people together and went to rob a fought against it and took it. Well, alas, that's not what happened then, but better late than never. He takes the precious crown of immense weight. Some say at least 75 pounds or maybe even more. I don't even know how you wear that. From the head of Hanun the king. He empties the spoils out of their city treasury. He subjugates the Ammonites to forced labor and returns to Jerusalem. Must have been a while since David made that commute back home after war. It must feel good. He must feel like himself again. When God reminds you of your purpose, you must finish your work. That's the completion of the three-point turn to restore your walk with God, to review first when God sends you a convicting message, admit your sin. Secondly, when God afflicts you for chastening, humble yourself. Thirdly, when God reminds you of your purpose, finish your work. By repentance and faith, David learns the, that the Lord restores his soul and leads them in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This kind of redemption story is only possible because of God's redemption. I hope it's your story as well. And for that to be true, you must understand redemption in light of creation and the fall. Creation, fall, redemption. God created us in his image that we make him look good, but we've fallen all of us have fallen into sin. We've been unsatisfied with him and his gifts. We despise the Lord and his commands, lusting, coveting, stealing, murdering in our heart. There's no one to blame but ourselves. 
we must surely die and be separated from God forever in hell. That's the high cost of sin. That's why we need redemption. And the one most offended by our sin is the one who can put it away. God the Father sent his Son to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, perfect and holy, God and man at the same time, lived a perfect life. Then he went to the cross to pay for our disobedience. Christ loved us, washed us, and cleansed us from our sins in his own blood. He was buried and rose again from the grave and ascended to heaven. And someday he'll return to judge all mankind. This is the gospel, the good news. The first and foremost among all convicting messages. And it demands a response. Repent. Admit that you've sinned and humble yourself before God. Know that you cannot save yourself. No amount of good works can reverse your mistakes. Place your hope of heaven in Jesus. You can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And once we enter into this covenantal relationship with Jesus, be assured that he and the Father love us, we're given everlasting consolation and good hope by grace to comfort our hearts and establish us in every good word, word and work. We have the guarantee that even if we are faithless at times, he remains faithful. Even when we stumble at times, we know that God hears us as we repent. He'll restore and strengthen our walk with him. I don't know where you are and where you've been in your walk with the Lord, but you're here. Now, as we end our time together in the Lord's Supper, let's prepare now with the reading of Psalm 51, a prayer confession, and a scripture assurance of pardon. So first, a quick closing prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it teaches us the high price of sin and high price of redemption, the depths of our depravity, the lengths we will go to hide and manipulate and to kill and Lord that's the verdict on all of us but we're also thankful for the great cost that was seen at the cross your son dying on the cross for us as the lamb and it's his blood that cleanses us we're thankful for that truth as we remind ourselves of this truth through the communion may our hearts be prepared pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name amen